Investors and searchers increasingly look for businesses that are really hard to break, that are just super resilient. And the way that that manifests itself is they're in growing industries, they have recurring or reoccurring revenue streams, they've got good margins, they're not very capital intensive so that you've got a lot of free cash flow that you can use to service debt or grow the business. There's little customer concentration. Like you just try and think about in your head, what is the perfect business? And then find something as close to that as possible. That allows a new CEO to come in and to get their legs under them without having to worry about recreating the revenue and making payroll you know, from day one. And so I think that takes a lot of the industry experience off the table. And the complexity of these businesses is typically a little bit lower. You're, you're not creating like astrophysics companies creating the next you know, mission to Mars where you have to have really deep technical expertise. Um, you know, there, there's plumbing companies, there's HVAC companies, there's remote answering services, there's, you know, bug control and things like that. So they tend to be not, not simple. No business is simple once you actually start to operate it, but like the technical know-how and understanding isn't super high. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. At their core, Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate investment firm, but beyond that, they are committed to technology and a world-class culture, which leads to a very forward-thinking mentality. Do you want to stay in the know on all things Fort Capital? Be sure to follow Fort Capital on LinkedIn and sign up for the quarterly newsletter on www.fortcapitallp.com. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. Tim, welcome to the show. I'm, I'm really excited about this morning. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's it an honor. Tim, uh, Tim and I met a couple years ago on, on none other than, than Twitter. Uh, we've remained in contact and become closer over the years, and I, I really admire Tim. And um, we're going to cover some things today that I've never covered on this podcast, so I'm really excited. So to kick it off, Let's just talk about uh, your background and what led you into what you're doing today. You got it. Where, where would you like me to start? <laughs> Why don't we start with um, kind of the career that you had leading into search funds, um, maybe the jobs that you held and kind of what propelled you into building your, your life really around um, the search fund industry? Sure. I, I certainly didn't grow up thinking that I would become a search fund investor. Uh, I didn't even know what search funds were until I entered graduate school. Uh, when I got to business school, I was looking to do something more non-traditional coming out of it. So I wasn't going to go the Fortune 500 route, which meant that the career services department there wasn't going to be a, as much use to me as it was to a majority of my classmates. And so I spent a lot of time in the library just poking through the stacks. This was through you know 1998 to 2000. So the internet bubble was still expanding really rapidly. There was a lot of inertia and momentum towards everything related to startups. So I was looking at things related to startups, but also private equity was another area of interest for me. 
And of course, if you sort of line those two things up where they intersect, search funds live. And so just by happenstance, I came across a very early Harvard Business School case study on an, on a search fund. And it was a eureka moment for me, this incredible light bulb that, that like there are people out there that would actually back young, inexperienced people like me and entrust them to run a small business. And it was just this absurd notion that was really captivating. And, and so I got really energized by that and started to do as much research as I could. And this is in the, the old days, again, that you know there, you couldn't just dial up a bunch of websites and learn everything about search funds. And so I wrote a letter to Harvard Business School and said, do you have any more of these case studies? There were a few which they sent back to me. One of them mentioned uh, sort of one of the originators of search funds, a professor named Irv Grausbeck, who had since gone on to Stanford. He was originally at Harvard. And so I heard his name and I reached out to his office and they sent me a couple more things. And so I, I had at the time all of the available information that was on search funds. And it was, you know, a stack, maybe a couple inches high. And I read through all of that, just devoured it, remained really interested in it. Um, couldn't figure out really how to start to take the next steps. And so talked to professor into letting me continue to explore the idea through an independent study. And that independent study was really just a thought exercise and where could this all go? It was still a very small emergent asset class at the time. It's still very small, but it was much, much smaller then. And because all the news around startups and venture capital, I was sort of hypothesizing that this is an asset class generating very high returns. If it behaves like venture capital, over time, we'll see the institutional institutionalization of search funds. There would be more established funds that would come in. At the time, it was only high net worth investors that were the backer of these searches. Um, and it would just professionalize over time. And so I wrote a research paper sort of with that idea, like this is where I think it's all headed. Put that on a shelf, got sucked up into the startup world, um, went through a venture-backed startup came out of there and bootstrapped a small online publishing company that led to a, a sale for a very modest amount of money moved down to san diego where i was a dating woman who's now my wife and took a really left turn in my career i ended up working for a real estate business for about six years um, and loved it you know super super multi-dimensional really interdisciplinary got to be both an investor and a manager for the first time i think i was a little bit better at the investor side than i was the manager side and then got out just before the great financial crisis and thought for the first time, I paid off my student loans, which was a novel thing for me. So I was, for the first time in my, in my adult life, out of debt, I uh, had a little bit of a savings to, that I could use to deploy towards something else. And I thought about doing today what, what we would call a self-funded search, just using my own little piggy bank to go out and look for a small business to acquire and then operate. At the time, we just had our first child. Uh, my wife was born and raised here in San Diego, was not all that excited about leaving. And so that meant that the geographic parameters were going to be really limited. And I just wasn't confident that I would be able to find a really high quality business in the time that I thought I would be able to devote to searching. And so I started to think, what else could I do that would connect me back into the small business ecosystem that, that was really my first love, uh, but allow me to stay in San Diego with my family? And I spent a number of months just sort of churning through ideas. And then I came across this old file folder that had that research paper in it that talked about the notion of someday there being funds that would invest in search funds. And it still seemed like a clever idea. I hadn't really been in contact with the search fund community for you know six or seven years. So I, I went online at that point and found that there was a group that had started to do exactly what my paper said. It was the first one. It had been raised a couple of years before, and it was a fund of search funds. And I thought, oh man, this is so cool. Like this is actually happening. And so I really had no business 
thinking that I could be an active participant in the search fund community. I hadn't gone to any of the target schools for my MBA program. I'd never really worked in private equity. I didn't I had never raised a search fund. Like I was as outsider as outsider could get. But I had that sort of entrepreneurial zest and, and naivete that uh, sometimes propels people to actually take action when legitimately they probably shouldn't. And so I did that. I reached out to the group in, in, uh, that had raised this fund of search funds. And I said, I think what you're doing is really clever. I'd love to do something similar. Do you think there's an opportunity? And they were just really gracious and very helpful and started to share deal flow and really just made it all come together pretty easily on the, the deal sourcing front. The capital raising was a much different ball of wax. If, this is 2006 or seven. Um, and so we we're in the depths of the recession. People's stock portfolios were crashing by the minute. There was a lot of fear in the marketplace. Here I was with the first time as a first time fund manager with no, no track record in investing in any asset class except maybe real estate, um, trying to raise a blind pool of capital to invest in this esoteric investment model that nobody had ever heard of. Like it was, it was a <laughs> tall order. And so I heard almost almost every person I talked to said no. It was just impossible to get anybody to say yes. So I took a lot more of my savings than I anticipated, got a little bit from some friends and family, uh, and just barely enough to, I thought, make it a legitimate exercise and hung out my shingle in 2007. Um, and the timing was really fortuitous. I think that was what enabled this whole journey to, to take off from there because because of this recession, the MBAs that were sort of the source of the search funds we're not having the same job prospects that they had a few years before. You know, the McKinsey's and the Goldman's of the world, their class sizes for new hires were shrinking by the day. And so all of a sudden, on a relative basis for these MBAs, search funds started to look a lot more attractive, right? You put this two-year stint on your resume that says you are a private equity professional sourcing deals. If it doesn't work out, that's a good story to tell. And hopefully the economy will have recovered. You can go find a great job. And if it does work out, you're now all of a sudden a CEO. So that looked pretty good in that moment in time. And so I was able to quickly grab a seat at the table. And what differentiated me, I think, early on was that I was willing to be really active as an investor. I didn't have much else going for me at the time, uh, but I could lend my time and efforts to help the searchers. And so I would roll up my sleeves and you know schedule regular calls to get updated and share and brainstorm and be a sounding board for what they were doing. And I was trying to do innovative things like hosting little seminars on due diligence and finding advisors that would come in and do that. things that are very commonplace today, but were not then. And so I was just trying to be as value add to the people that I was working with as possible. And that quickly, I think, established me as a little bit different from some of the other investors at the time. Not better, but just different. And after that, it was really 10 years of entirely inbound deal flow. Uh, you know, once you're sort of a part of that little community uh, and well established, they just come, there's only a certain number of investors. And so everybody sort of finds you. Uh, and so I really enjoyed that for the better part of a decade. You know, just got to see all these really interesting niche businesses. The financial returns were attractive. The caliber of people, both on the investor side and the searcher side, were higher than any other group that I'd ever been a part of. And just so gracious and humble and down to earth. Like for somebody that was uh, that's a business junkie, it was like walking into Nirvana. I mean, it was it was as good as it as I could possibly imagine, and even better in many respects. Over that 10 year span of time though, what started to happen is more and more people started to hear about search funds. It started to become, you know, from this, this thing that nobody had ever heard of to a few people had heard of it, to like all the brokers now know of it. And more capital was coming in, more searchers were coming in. And just like my early research paper had sort of suggested, it was professionalizing. 
And and overall, that was a good thing because it was it was providing access to this opportunity for more people and allowing more legacy business owners to transition their businesses into very competent hands. But there were some byproducts that were less aligned with my personal interests. So the deal sizes were getting larger. Um, the purchase price multiples being paid were also growing. The portfolios of the investors were swelling rapidly, my own included. I, I think at its peak, I probably had over 60 different operating company investments. And that started to erode at the margins the ability to really be de a deep mentor to these searchers. <clears throat> and the relationship aspect I found over time was what I really enjoyed the most. And it was getting harder for me to do that to the degree that I wanted to. And I felt more just like a capital allocator writing checks and trying to keep up with the quarterly reports. And so about five years ago now, I turned off the spigot on my traditional search fund investing and said, I've, I've got enough pattern recognition and a base of experience here that I think I could do some of this on my own. My balance sheet had grown to the point where I had enough capital to go maybe do a couple of deals if I was careful about the size and, and the purchase price that I paid for them. And so I became effectively a searcher myself, again, a self-funded searcher with maybe a little bit bigger bankroll than, than most self-funded searchers. Uh, and I moved back down market to this deal size of one to $2 million in, in EBITDA or profit, um, where I saw an opportunity in the marketplace that was less traded than the larger cousins that search funds were going after, which is typically $2 million in profit at above. But the businesses were largely the same and they had the same problems. They still lacked a lot of the same installation of systems and lack of middle management and all these things. And so there was almost this price arbitrage where you could go in and buy these slightly smaller businesses for more reasonable prices than the larger ones. And that suited my balance sheet and I think just my more value minded instincts. Um, and so over the course of three years, I founded one business with a partner and then bought two others, installed management in each of those, and was just having a ball. Like It was great. I got to have more control. I got to be really tightly aligned with the CEOs that I was working with. They were exceptional people who I thought were really competent at what they were doing. I was excited about the businesses and the industries that we were in. Um, and so I was happily going down that path. And that was around the time that I was starting to get active on Twitter. And with that, I started to come across a lot more of these self-funded searchers, people that were really ambitious, uh, just native entrepreneurs that wanted to be out on their own and have the autonomy. And I was getting pretty excited about that because there were so many more of them than there were these Ivy League pedigreed MBAs that traditional search funds typically uh, form themselves around. And I thought, this has been such an, a powerful experience in my life. I wonder if there's a way that I can start to contribute back use my skills and knowledge and connections to give more people access to this opportunity. And the self-funded search world seemed like the reasonable starting point because there was so much interest there. And so I was looking for a way to build an investment platform to support self-funded searchers, most of whom rely on uh, a loan product from the government, the SBA 7A loan program that has a lot of restrictions on it and requires personal guarantees if you own more than a certain percentage of the company. And ultimately chasing down all those rabbit holes and trying to stitch together how I would create a successful investment firm within the parameters set by the SBA as the primary funding source just proved to be a little more complicated than, than I had expected and made the whole endeavor not really worthwhile. And around that time, someone reached out to me again through Twitter and um, my now partner, Justin Burris, who had been at a very large merchant bank. And he said, you know, I'm really interested in this search fund asset class. I've been dealing with closely held family owned businesses for my entire career, but I really want to move down market. That's really what I feel in my soul is the best use of my talents. 
um, I'd like to explore with you some ideas that I have. And they were really interestingly aligned with the th kinds of thoughts that were running through my head. He had sort of come at it from top down. So this is a macro thesis and here's how all the trends stack up and here's where I see the opportunity. And I was just living in the weeds and saying like, I'm seeing all these people that want to be entrepreneurs through acquisition that either lack the capital or the confidence or you know some other ingredient to get them over the hump that didn't fit into the traditional search fund model. And so we ended up iterating on this idea and just having these great brainstorming sessions for six or nine months uh, and ultimately ended up creating a model that sits right between what today is self-funded search and traditional search, both in terms of size, in terms of the risk profile, in terms of the equity awards. Um, and so it's just a different flavor of, of what people now call, rather than search funds, entrepreneurship through acquisition. And that's one of the neat things that's been happening in the overall ETA community for the past five or 10 years is that there's just been this explosion of different ideas and experimentation as the asset class continues to grow so that the people that want to pursue this as operators now have a much wider variety of options to, to try from and select so that they can find one that's really as best suited to their interests and constraints as, as possible. So it's just, it's really starting to open the doors and it's super exciting and it's fun to continue to still be a part of it and keep myself intellectually sort of challenged by trying something new and different, but leveraging all of the prior experience that I've had over the past 15 years. We are going to have such a great episode. I've already written down like 10 things. Um, let's, let's start it. Like just let's creep into this at the, at the, at the basic level. There's two things I want to start with. One, let's ask the most obvious question. What is a search fund? And maybe you can broadly give us the definition of what you just said, uh, traditional versus self-funded versus maybe even how you look at uh, how you're now re-entering the space. Sure. So a search fund is a two-stage acquisition vehicle. It's like a mini leverage buyout. It, it, it is an operator first model rather than a company first model, meaning that the operator emerges first and says, I want to be the CEO and part owner of a business. They gather a group of investors around them um, to support their efforts. That's why it's called a search fund. They raise a, in the traditional model, they raise a fund to support their search. That typically lasts two years. They raise enough capital to give them two years of runway. And it's not extravagant. You know, there's maybe a small office, but a lot of people increasingly are working from home. It's a phone, it's a computer, a little bit of money for some travel, uh, some database and research costs. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's a modest amount of money with, for most of these people, a significant haircut to their professional earnings or their opportunity for what they could earn if they're coming right out of business school. You know, they're foregoing a lot to choose to do this. And so in that two-year span of time, their sole focus is to look for a business. And so these are people that are very hard workers, you know, the most driven among us. Uh, and so they're working 40 to 80 plus hours a week, every week for as, you know, two plus years to find a single business. So you think about like, it's a sales job, right? You create a sales funnel, you put a lot of stuff into the top, you work that down, you have a first conversation, then you sign maybe a non-disclosure agreement, then you get some financials, maybe a second meeting, then you do an insight visit, then or an on-site visit, then you maybe submit a letter of intent, all to hopefully get to that one deal where you've got alignment between the seller's interest in selling, a good business, a reasonable price in an industry, and in a role that you think you could be good at. So like all the stars have to align, it's very challenging, requires a massive amount of effort, um, I think when I started, the technology tools have really enabled this a lot. It used to be, you know, maybe you'd have to contact 500 or 1,000 businesses to get one deal across the line. Now, 
people are contacting 500 businesses a week, uh, you know, for two years. So it's just tens of thousands of, of outreach. Uh, and so th as a result, the sellers are getting bombarded more and more. So the, the noise level for them is going up. It's getting harder to break through. Um, but that's the traditional model is a two year funded search to go out and identify a business. Then once you find it, you go back to your investors and sort of pass the hat and say, is there enough interest here to, to provide me the equity capital to go buy it? If there is, the deal gets across the finish line. That searcher now becomes the CEO. They're given a salary, typically a bonus, and then an equity package, which is really the, the carrot on the, on the end of the stick, is everybody's working for the equity. You're not being paid huge salaries. These are also small businesses. Um, but hopefully, if you're doing a good job as CEO and you've picked a good business, the business grows and some years down the line, you have an opportunity to monetize all the value that you've created. The self-funded search is identical in many respects. The businesses tend to be smaller. Um, so as I mentioned, with the traditional search, it's now typically $2 million in profit and above. The, the self-funded search is typically a million dollars and below. There, there are exceptions to this, but the SBA loan product that I talked about before usually maxes out at $5 million. Um, there are some sort of bridge products that can extend it a little bit higher, but $5 million is the SBA typical stated maximum. And so if you're looking at a million dollars in profit on a business and you put a multiple on that of call it three to five times, you can see how you'd quickly sort of hit the ceiling on that debt product. And so that that's one of the big constraints there. You can also obviously raise outside capital to supplement it, but most of the deals are a million dollars in profit or below. And because they use this SBA debt product, the searcher in that case has to sign a personal guarantee. Um, and so they put everything on the line to be able to buy this business. The other difference with the self-funded search besides the size and the personal guarantee is that um, they're not funded during their search. That's why it's called a self-funded search. So they don't go out and raise this pool of capital for a search fund. They're doing it off the side of their desk while they're working a full-time job, or some of them, if they've been careful and saved their money, uh, will go out and leave their job and dedicate their search. The profile of businesses also tends to be a little bit different. There's, a lot of times people do this in their own backyard. Traditional search funds, the request is usually that they look all over the country. Uh, Self-funded searchers, you might look just in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So this is where my family is. This is where our, our kids are going to school. We don't want to move. So I'm just going to look for a business here. Um, and there's a lot more businesses that are smaller than there are that are larger. So that actually sort of works out. Um, and then in most self-funded search deals, because they're signing this personal guarantee and debt is so much larger a portion of the purchase price, it can be 80 or 90% or more in a self-funded deal versus typically 50% or less in a traditional deal. Uh, the searcher ends up with more ownership in the business at the end of the day in a, in a self-funded search than they do in a traditional search. So high level, that's sort of both end, both of the bookends on the search fund model. There's also different models. There are um, single LP based models, there's accelerator models, there's all kinds of other things. Majority Search, the company that I run with Justin, sort of fits in one of those buckets. We, we are a single LP, so that means that there is not a consortium of investors that backs each searcher, there's just us. Um, and so we have uh, the discretion to say whether or not a deal gets done or not. So that alignment between us and our searchers has to be really strong uh, because we need to understand collectively what a good deal looks like to us and there can't be much divergence in that viewpoint. So that's one difference from us, from the traditional and the self-funded, is that we're just a single, a single investor that provides all of the capital to fund an acquisition. We, we're just getting started. We launched in February. We've got four searchers on board now that are actively searching. Our target size sits 
between one and two million dollars in profit. So right, that sandwich between the traditional and the self-funded size. Um, and we typically like to over-equitize our deals. What that means is that we we don't have a need to provide third-party bank debt to close the financing on a deal. We can just write a check for all of the equity and close it. Um, we've got committed capital on like the both the traditional and the self-funded search funds. A lot of times they don't have committed capital. They still have to go and pass the hat or raise the capital once they identify the deal. We think that having that committed capital provides certainty to the seller in the marketplace, and that's differentiating. We also think by not having to use bank debt that we can remove that contingency from a purchase agreement and say, we don't have to go secure third-party financing. We can close the deal ourselves, and we'll worry about that later if we choose to do so. Um, and so it presents a really strong buyer profile. And in our size range, uh, there just aren't many people that can offer that. And so we think it's it's pretty differentiated. We're already seeing in the marketplace and from sellers and intermediaries that um, they like the product that we've put together. And they're, they're really excited about our searchers who tend to be a little bit more experienced than the traditional searchers who are oftentimes, you know, right out of business school or a few years. Um, our SKUs significantly older than that, with a little bit more notches on their belt and more experienced leading teams running PLs. And I've had great success with the traditional searches coming right out of MBA programs. So it's not to say that they're they're better, but it just decreases the the risk that we're taking because we know that they've already done operations before they enjoy it they're good at it there's more data points for us to collect as we're going through the interviewing process to say this is a skill set they have and then we can backfill more of the transactional side if they don't have it around how do you find a deal how do you structure a deal how do you negotiate a deal they don't have to have that really broad set of skills that a traditional search funder would have we can we can sort of provide the the augmentation around those areas if they're not quite as strong. I love it. Is the structure of the deal. So if I come to you and I say, I'm going to search and, and, and I make it through and, and we can, let's maybe talk about what you're doing and then maybe traditional searcher will kind of leave out the self-funded um, for now. Do I make a deal with you and say, this is the deal that when I find a business, this is going to be the financial structure. This is my salary. This is how it's all going to work. Or does that typically, is that typically crafted once I found a business to buy and we create a structure that, that, that fits for that? Um, like how do these structures usually work for a, 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 a searcher? I'll go through each of the phases, sort of the, the search phase and then, and then the operating phase. So in the search phase, Everybody knows what they're getting themselves into. There's a salary in our case. Um, it's it's similar to what most searchers, traditional searchers get. It's $125,000 a year. We make a two-year commitment to the searcher at that level, plus covering all of the incidental expenses, similar to a traditional search. And then there's a, an understanding about what the equity award will look like once they're the CEO of an operating company. So in a traditional model, there's there's two different ones. One, if you're a solo searcher, and one if you're a partnered search, so it's you and one other person. In a single model, this is all negotiable, but it rarely is negotiated in the traditional model. A single searcher will get up to 25% of the equity, meaning after all of the all of the investor's money has been paid back, plus a preferred return, then they can earn, the searcher can earn up to 25% of the economics of the, of the business at that point. And it's, it's broken into three tranches. The first is, and it's a third, a third, a third. The first is eight and a third percent at closing, eight and a third percent vests over time, and then eight and a third percent is award based on performance hurdles, usually tied to IRR, the internal rate of return. Um, and there's a sliding scale, typically from 20 to 35% on the returns of the investment. So if you do 35% IRR or greater, 
over the, the holding period of that investment, you earn the full eight and a third final bucket. If it's a partnered search, it's the same, but instead of 25%, it goes to 30%, so it's 10, 10, 10. In our model, um, it's all performance-based. So you have to really believe in yourself and in the potential growth of the business. And our award is based on the growth in EBITDA over the first five years. So the, the cash flow performance of the business and the growth of that over the first five years. And it's a, it's, it's a linear model that goes from zero to 51% of the ownership. So we offer, you know, more than twice the award for a solo searcher compared to the traditional model, but you really have to grow the business fast to get to that 51%. And under what we expect to be more normal outcomes, our searchers will earn about the same amount of equity as a traditional searcher, but they have the additional ability to earn much, much more. And in return for offering the ability for greater upside, because it's all performance-based, if the business doesn't perform as well as we all expect, they might actually earn less equity than a traditional searcher. And in terms of the, the just the last piece you had asked about was the the compensation, sort of the salary as a CEO. So it, it's it's not fixed, but there's sort of a range. And we talk about this with our searchers going in: is that we expect you know year one salary and bonus will be a certain amount of money. The traditional search fund, and there's studies that Stanford reports that sort of talk about what the average. It's usually around a couple hundred thousand dollars in base salary, uh, and. and a little bit more than that with bonus. And then it, it grows from there based on who the board is in the traditional model, how they feel about the compensation structure, how big the business is, and how much salary it can support for the CEO, and then the performance of the CEO themselves. All right. I, I, I want to talk about the CEOs and the actual characteristics of them. But before I do that, you've said very uh, several times since we've started talking about this search fund community. Can you just give a little bit more on like how big is this community? Where does it exist? How if if you haven't been a part of it, how do you find it? I know it's kind of a broad, you know, it's not like a, you know, there's a building that you show up to, but what how do you define what the search fund community looks like? And I know it's grown tremendously since you first got in it, but as we sit today, what does that mean to you, the search fund community? The search fund community is very dispersed. Um and there are hubs, I would say. There's no centralized headquarters for the search fund community, but naturally on the traditional side, business schools have become real anchors in the communities and, and local regional versions. So um, Booth and Kellogg in Chicago, those business schools have a very active search fund community. Harvard and Stanford, the same. Wharton, like and more and more, there's, there's, a there's a group of schools in the Southeast that hold an annual conference and conferences drive a lot of the connection for people where they bring investors and service providers and searchers all together. Um, some of the larger search fund investors that, you know, they've got very large portfolios now, they will hold annual events and bring all of their searchers and CEOs together to host little, little conferences to, you know, build relationships, but also to share best practices and do some peer learning with each other. And it, that's another way that community comes together. Uh, there's a, a very active site called searchfunder.com online that anyone can register for. And then you can participate in the forums and they've got directories and that has become sort of a hub. I think they may have 10,000 plus members around the globe. It really has gone global over the past 15 years, although the US is still the, the largest market. Um, Twitter has actually become a nice little hub for search funds. It's not as active in the traditional search fund crowd, but in the self-funded crowd, there's a lot of members on Twitter that are very active um, and talking about things going on in search. And there's just one of the common threads about the community is the spirit of generosity. 
I, I think because it started in the academic world and there was just this sense of giving back and sort of sharing the knowledge that everybody was accumulating, that has persisted and I hope it always will continue to do so. It's a lot less competitive than most corners of the, the mergers and acquisitions or investment landscape. Um, part of it is because most deals require a consortium. Part of it, I think, is the, just the origin story. But all, people share on Twitter things that is just gold, things that you know took me years to learn. People are just putting out there. And same thing on searchfunder.com and at these conferences. Like People just really share more than you would ever expect them to um, and give up just about everything that they've learned to benefit the people coming behind them. Because, you know, the search is a very short defined time span. And once you're done with it, you sort of close that chapter and now you're an operator if it works out right. And so there's just there's a lot of willingness to say, here's what I did and here's what worked for me. Here's things to watch out for. And so that community it, there's websites you can just almost any time if you find a search fund website, you can reach out to the person that runs it and you'll get a response, right? There's just, and so that's the community. It's it's sort of everywhere yeah. and nowhere. Yep. What's this Discord community, EBITDish? Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that. So that's brand new. Um, we, Justin and I, and a couple other people from the Search Fund community felt that there was a missing element to this community and it was large enough now that we might be able to build another online community that was a little bit more well, there's less friction, so you didn't have to feel really formal about posting things. It was almost like chat, a, a chat group, like a Slack channel, and we ended up choosing Discord. But it, it's pretty selective to get in. We want to control the quality to make sure that people are really bought into what we're trying to build. We've got about 250 people on there now representing investors, service providers, searchers, prospective searchers, and CEOs. Um, and, and it's starting to, to get a little bit of life to it. And it's hard to build a community especially an online one where there, is, there isn't native trust. There's a strong affinity, but people aren't comfortable sharing online. You and I, I think, are pretty immune to it now because of all the <laughs> sharing on Twitter. But you know, people that haven't done that for a number of years, like it, it's still sort of nerve-wracking to think about, I'm going to post something online that other people are going to see. So we've tried to create public spaces and private spaces uh, and hope over time that it will become uh, another outlet for people to engage with one another and build these relationships and continue to share. Let's start digging in. Um, we're going to talk about CEOs and these and the profiles of of the people that you've looked at uh, and you've met. I mean, over the years, you've now talked to hundreds, if not thousands, of potential searchers that that want to do this. And so, I want to talk about the characteristics of what makes uh, a successful searcher. I'm sure that's it's not just one profile. I'm sure they fit in different buckets. But when you think of this is the the perfect profile for what we would like to go after, or here are some of the things that I've really seen that have worked. What are those? And then after that, I want to ask, is there, are there things that you've picked up on? You said you've recognized patterns where it's almost an immediate no uh, in, in your mind, What what how you would categorize that. But we'll start with what makes a great one. Yeah. Can I flip the question around and ask you what you would think first? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've done some I've done some uh some some studying a little bit. Um I would say a great uh if I was thinking about it probably um probably has been in the industry or been in a role already that has demonstrated uh proven leadership abilities, uh the ability to understand a budget and really a P&L. Um 
again, leadership and management are a little bit different. So I'd want to know, like, have you built teams? Have you led teams? Um, because and and I'd really want to get to know, like, what type of risk have you taken? Have you ever risked your own dollars on anything? Have you had to risk uh, maybe you're not your own, but the company's dollars? Like, what appetite for risk have you maybe do you have and what have you been experienced to? Um, you know, this is where I'm, I'm clueless, but I would assume that a searcher, if they're coming out of the aerospace industry or the, uh, you know, um, the Topo Chico manufacturing industry, that they're going to be looking for some type of business that's in or around that. They're looking to kind of leverage past experience in this new business. So that's something I'd probably look for. Um, and then the obvious, uh, you know, a great background check that checks out. Um, you know, I would say, um, and I, I, I don't know if I'm just shooting myself in the foot with this answer. Maybe some of it's right. Um, the call, the, the college degree or the MBA would be less important to me. Um, I just believe we've evolved into this world where, like you were just discussing Twitter, there's things that people are learning on Twitter now in a matter of minutes that took you a decade to find out. And so I'd probably put less emphasis on maybe where you went to college or if you have an MBA then, and then more emphasize, tell me where your experience is. Um, I'm going to go and say I probably wouldn't back someone that was just an ambitious kid out of college that just wanted to go for it right out the gates. That probably would fit in the too risky bucket for me. So I don't know if I described the the great searcher, but um, they must have experience. They must have proven leadership capability. They must know what a PNL is and the importance of financials. Um, and then maybe I just didn't touch on this. They have to be a good person. Um, I think I think everybody has a good radar for if they're a great person and, and if they have a great background that kind of checks out, whether that's references, et cetera, you can um, nail that home. So maybe those would be my, my four things. I don't know if I okay. totally whiff. No, there. It's a, it's a uh, no, you didn't whiff. It's a great list. I'd say it's a conventional view. I, the, the first thing you said was they have to have experience in the industry in which they hope to operate. And that's what I hear universally from people that are unfamiliar with the search fund world is and i say what i'm doing and they say i would never a lot of them are business owners that i talk to and they say i would never let someone without industry experience in my industry come run my business it would be a total disaster right like that's conventional wisdom that's where everybody starts but search funds the first one was raised in 1984 it has generated on average over a 30 percent annual compounded return sent from 1984 till today largely backing first-time CEOs without prior industry experience coming right out of graduate business school programs. So conventional wisdom and the data tell different stories, right? The, and the data says the prior industry knowledge largely doesn't matter. So that's interesting, right? Like, And so then the next question will be, well, why doesn't it matter? If everybody thinks that it really matters and we've accumulated all this experience and we know how hard it is to run a business in our industry, how could somebody else come in from the outside and do this? Well, part of it is that search funds have evolved to only focus on very particular types of businesses for the most part. We, there's recognition that we're taking a pretty inexperienced operator and putting them into a position of great responsibility. And so to compensate for that, investors and searchers increasingly look for businesses 
that are really hard to break, that are just super resilient. And the way that that manifests itself is they're in growing industries, they have recurring or reoccurring revenue streams, they've got good margins, they're not very capital intensive so that you've got a lot of free cash flow that you can use to service debt or grow the business. There's little customer concentration. Like you just try and think about in your head, what is the perfect business? And then find something as close to that as possible. And so that allows a new CEO to come in and to get their legs under them without having to worry about recreating the revenue and making payroll you know, from day one. And so I think that takes a lot of the industry experience off the table. And the complexity of these businesses is typically a little bit lower. You're, you're not creating like astrophysics companies creating the next you know, mission to Mars where you have to have really deep technical expertise. Um, you know, there, there's plumbing companies, there's HVAC companies, there's remote answering services, there's, you know, bug control and things like that. So they tend to be not, not simple. No business is simple once you actually start to operate it, but like the technical know-how and understanding isn't super high. Um, so what I look for in a CEO, coming back to the question, is almost everybody that finds their way to search funds has sufficient intelligence to do this. You don't have to have a Harvard MBA to be a successful small company CEO. Um, and in fact, what is more important than intelligence in many cases is common sense and good judgment, right? Which are sometimes related to one another with intelligence, but not always, right? It, it, being a CEO of a small company involves lots of small daily decisions. And if you're making the majority of those poorly, you're creating a huge headwind for yourself. If you're making a majority of those well, based on you know good available information, you create a tailwind. And then you can start to worry about, well, how do I make the bigger decisions smartly? So common sense, judgment is one. Uh, some level of base intelligence, which I said is typically the easiest bar to clear. Um, tenacity and grit, really hard to get motivated every day, to get told no by business owners for up to two years before one finally says yes. And then just to grind it out for a number of years after that as a CEO in a small under-resourced company where you know, you're the chief cook and bottle washer as much as you are the CEO, like you have to really want it. Um, so some passion for, for business. I think what you talked about is sort of this entrepreneurial risk-taking mindset. I think, again, they sort of self-select into this, so they've already got it because they're giving up opportunities where they could make a lot more current compensation in order to choose to do this uh, most often. And so that's sort of an indicator and a signal that they're entrepreneurial and, and even better if they've already burned the boats in the harbor, right? They've left their job, like they're, they're, they're all in on this. That's, those are some of the, the indicators that, okay, they're, they're willing to take some risks and that's good. You also don't want somebody that is such a risk taker that they're gonna be reckless. Right, so there, there, it needs to be within a certain bound, and there, there is a continuum of risk taking. And there, I think you can, you know, you need to be a little bit closer to Richard Branson than somebody waiting for the the gold watch after fifty years. But you don't have to be Richard Branson. Um, I think, I don't know, uh, communication skills are really important, um, and, and I think particularly being able to persuade people through communication. So sales would be another name for that. That every single element of this journey from raising a search fund to exiting a, a, a company that you've successfully bought involves some element of sales. 
you're initially selling investors on your vision and your ability to lead a small company. Then you're selling either a broker or a seller on your ability to be a good steward of the legacy of that business. You're selling your investors on supporting and capitalizing that business. You're selling the lender on providing you a loan. You're selling the employees that you're going to step in and, and provide safety and security for their jobs. You're selling their your vendors that you're going to be a good credit risk for them. You're selling prospective employees that you're going to be a good future employee. And of course, you're obviously selling customers that your product or service is worth the money that you're asking for, for what you're delivering. So that's really important. Um, and then uh, humility, coachability. You know, we're not looking for sort of Jack Welch, sort of in-your-face, hard-charging leadership. Uh, some people have that, and it works in certain situations. But typically, because of the profile of people that we're, we're bringing on and the lack of experience and the fact that they're going into new industries, it's really important that, that they don't lead with their pedigree. And they don't come across as a bull in a china shop and say, I know everything about how to run your business better than you do. Mr. or Miss business owner that has run this for 30 years, right? Like you can destroy a lot of value very, very quickly if you walk in and say, I know how to do this best. Like the best thing you can do is sit your butt down and just listen, be kind, care about people, get settled, earn the respect, ask them to tell you when you're screwing things up. You make your own judgment about whether or not they're accurate because people always have, you know, imperfect information. Uh, and be receptive to feedback and, and criticism. And even sometimes when it stinks, because that's how you're going to grow as a leader. And I'm sure you've seen that, you know, you have to eat your humble pie on a really regular basis, even when you don't want to. And the people that get really good at that are the ones that grow the fastest. Um, that's almost my entire list. The last element for me is just personal chemistry. This is a long relationship that, that we're building with people. And, and I want to be invested in their journey and be a, a huge authentic cheerleader of what they're doing. Um, and so I just want to like the person on top of it. That's the last thing that I look for. But all of the other elements, the bar is surprisingly low in areas where you might expect it to be really high. And at least in, in the way I assess people, very high in areas where you might expect it to be low. And, and for me, 80% of the analysis and evaluation is around the, the EQ things, not the IQ things. I love that. And I'm not surprised by that answer. Um, I, I love that. There's one thing I wanted to drill in uh, just a little bit on. We could go through all the different uh, characteristics, but you said common sense and judgment. Is there a way that you've uh, learned over time to see if somebody has that? Is it a test that they take? Is it certain questions that you ask? Like, What demonstrates that somebody has common sense and judgment? That's a great question. I, none of this is perfect, right? Anybody that has interviewed anyone else knows that it is an imperfect an imperfect science. In fact, early on in my search fund career, I'm a really analytical, logical person. So I wanted to make it as, as objective as possible. And so I used you know, personality tests, you know, everything I could do to make it systematic. I did score sheets, you know, standardized questions. Um, and then I watched the outcomes for a number of years to see if what I thought was a good searcher actually ended up being a good searcher. And my either my judgment is really bad or there's just so much serendipity and luck in the, embedded into the system that there was almost no correlation between who I thought would be successful and who was successful based on sort of the rigorous objective measures. And so it's not quite as simple as like just throwing a deck of cards in the air and, you know, hoping that a few land aces, like you have to be a little bit more careful than that. I think you can screen out some of the bad actors. Like arrogance is one of the things that disqualifies people in my book really quickly, right? If they're just really full of themselves, that's a screen out. 
Um, getting at things like judgment and common sense, it's through conversations and it's, there's not, I don't have a rote interviewing style. I like it to be really conversational and I like to ask, one of the things that I've tried to develop in my own self is my ability to be a good listener and a good question asker. Um, and so just finding those moments and sometimes it'll take three or four conversations and you get one moment where you think I can, if I just ask this question right now, the answer is gonna be really telling. Um, and oftentimes it's a little uncomfortable to ask it, right? You're asking people to be vulnerable about something or to expose something that in that moment that they might not otherwise expose. And, you know, not trying to like break people down, but there's always a, a level of politeness. Well, oftentimes, not always, often a level of politeness that exists in interviews because both sides are selling each other. You want to make a good first impression. And we're just wired as humans, most of us, to want to be likable and to be liked. Um, and so it oftentimes requires a little bit of more directness you know, and just sort of calling something out, like uh, an example is, that I'll give is I, I've ended interviews after like eight minutes before where somebody will say something. I'm like, I can tell that you just don't want to do that. Is that right? And they're so taken off guard that I'm like stopping this process so early into it. And it's a real challenge to them. And and most of the time when I say that, it's because I've, I've picked up on something and they go, yeah, that's right. And I go, okay, great. Well, like no harm done. Glad we had the chance to get to know each other, but clearly it's not a fit. And so we move on um, with common sense and judgment. It's, it's sort of those same things. I look for little tells along the way. Tell me about the experience when you did this. How did you make that decision? What was it like working with this coworker? And you start to connect all these little dots that appear. It might not be a direct question. It's almost like a bank shot where you're collecting little, little bits of evidence along the way that start to add up. When they told this story, like that seemed rational. It seemed like there was a lot of common sense there. They didn't have perfect information. And here's how they dealt with it. Were they comfortable making a decision when they only had 30% of the information or do they need 80%? Um, did, who did they rely on? Did they use other people to talk to about this decision or is it all in their head and they try and be the, the, the single warrior hero that's out there doing everything on the battlefield all by themselves? Like, is that, is that good judgment in that case or is it bad judgment? There's, there's just so many variables and that's where the pattern recognition kicks in that I don't even think my answer here is very articulate because so much of it is just intuitive to me at this point. And so to try and take what's intuitive in my head and make it explicit is, is difficult. Um, and I should probably spend some more time thinking about it because it would probably help my thinking. But that's that's in, in a very rough sense. My process is to just ask lots of questions and then to, to go back, reflect on those questions, see what I've learned. Usually new questions will pop up and then I'll go back and have another conversation and just iterate over cycles around that. And then the, the last thing that I do is around reference checking and, and doing deep reference checks, both with people that are provided as references and those that you can find through back channels. Um, and asking again, if, if people are willing to open up, asking like, here's what I've observed about the candidate in my experience. You've known them a lot longer than I have. How am I doing? Like, is my intuition about this person right? Are these things that you've noticed about them as well? Or did I miss something? relative, if, if they've worked with a lot of people in similar capacities, how well does that person rank among all of them? And the jobs are typically different than the job that they're going to do with us. So there's not always direct applicability to like, oh, they were like the best analyst I ever had, but maybe the analyst role isn't something that's relevant to what we're doing. So it might not be a, a perfect answer, but you still get get a sense of people through the references that you can't get by talking to the person directly. And there's there's great books out there like Who um, is one that all about interviewing and and there's a thing called the threat of a reference check which can get people to be a little bit more transparent in the, in the middle of an interview where you say when I talk to your references about this what will they tell me 
right? So that's the threat of a reference check. So now maybe they're going to be a little bit more transparent because you've said that I'm going to talk to somebody else and they're going to give me the real goods. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. Depending on how fast you read, you can look at our deal, approve our deal, sign our deal, and send money for a deal in under 10 minutes, assuming you've already understood what the deal is. Like the frictional cost of how that all moves through our system now is a matter of minutes, and it does not require any human interaction between that unless the investor wants it. We have investors that are in 15 different deals. They can go into their portal online, go to their profile, and everything they could want from every document they've signed to every report we've sent to every distribution we've sent every point of contact with them throughout the life of the investment is documented in one place you can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information that's s-e-e juniper and now back to the show all right i've made it through step one and you've said i'm going to back you Chris, I'm going to be the searcher for the rest of this episode. Uh, what are best practices that we're going to get into the types of businesses and what you've really liked over time? But before we get to that, what are the best practices for finding these? And maybe even start before that, Have in our conversation, have we already discussed, hey, I'm Chris in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm willing to go anywhere. I'm willing to move anywhere. Uh, you know, but here's the industries I'm staying in. Like, what do we discuss the search? Like, wh- how do we define the uh, parameters of the search between you and I before I go out? What do you want to know? Right. W- what's the playing field? Um, geography is important. Um, I think some general agreement about what a good business looks like so that we have at least a target drawn out there that we can that we can use as a reference point. And a commitment to each other that we're going to lean in and try and build trust in the relationship so that we can be really be the best resources to one another that we can. Right. I, I don't want it to feel between us like you have to sell me the best story of what's going on at any given moment. And I don't want to have to pretend like I've got all the answers because I've been doing this for 15 years. Right. Like there, it requires a level of trust and vulnerability to get to that place where there's just an openness to the relationship and the communication that you don't feel like we have to have a scheduled call. You can just pick up the phone on a whim like, Tim, I need two seconds of your time. I just had this crazy idea. I want to run it by you. Or even better, I had this really stupid idea but I wanted to talk it over with somebody. Can you listen, right? Like to do that with with the person that is paying your salary and providing the capital for you to become a CEO and say, I've got a stupid idea, but I want to share it. To me, like that's a great thing, right? But it's really hard to get to that place with people. And so you have to like model the behavior early. So we would have already gone through a lot of that together is getting comfortable with each other and planting those seeds to say like, here's who I am. I'm not going to be perfect. I don't expect you to be perfect. We're just going to do our best work together and try and figure it out. And if we don't know, we'll, we'll deal with that when we get there and we'll look to people besides us to help us. So we've, we've identified that we want to be in relationship together. We've identified the geography that you're willing 
to, to search in where you and your family, if you have one, are willing to, to move if you find a good business. Um, we're generally agreed on the size of the company. We don't have to talk about industries. We're largely generalists. There are certain kinds of businesses that are less appealing to us, project-baked businesses, retail businesses, um, things in very cyclical industries typically would not be appealing to us. So we talk about those and say, this is sort of the off-limits list. There might be exceptions, but it's probably not a good use of time for you to be spending a lot of time searching there because they're just not gonna have a large number of businesses that fit the profile that we're looking for. And, and that's largely what we talked about before, the recurring revenues, the high margins, all of that. Um, and then we wanna get you set up for success. And so, Again, it's a sales job. So you need to know who you are. You need to know what your talking points are going to be, what your elevator pitch is. You know, if you happen to get a seller on the phone, you thought it was going to voicemail, but they pick up, what are you going to say when they say, who are you, right? How do you make that compelling? And so there's, you know, going through rehearsals on that if the searcher wants um, and thinks that that would be helpful. Like, I'm happy to role play the, the role of the seller and to give feedback and coach on that. Um, same thing with um, setting up the technology stack. A lot of this now is driven by technology. So and that I said early, earlier in our conversation that when I started investing in search funds, it might take 500 businesses to close a deal. And now it's 500 a week in some cases. A lot of that is because of the, the emergence of technology that supports more massive outreach. So selecting the right contact databases, there are email automation programs that are game changers. They just are force multipliers to an unbelievable degree where you create sequences of emails or other touch points. It could be LinkedIn connection requests. It could be phone calls. It could be uh, text messages now, all kinds of things. And you drop it, you say on day one, send this automated email and it can be personalized with these variables. Day three, send a follow-up if they haven't responded. And so you create these sequences. Uh, it's almost very data-driven um, to be able to do mass outreach that's somewhat personalized at scale. And then hopefully what comes back from that is enough responses of people saying, yeah, I'd like to chat that you get to schedule calls with owners. So a lot of it is proprietary outreach. And then there's also the broker channel uh, where you're dealing with intermediaries that then feed you deals. Um, so we would work to get you set up, make sure you have the right technology stack, make sure you've got your story down, that you have a website that reflects the story you want to pitch, which is usually not cut and dry and like all financy. It's like, who who is Chris Powers as a person? I want to know about you as a seller. I want to know about your family because it's an emotional sale, maybe in contrast to real estate. But people, sometimes they fall in love with their buildings, but not, not usually. And if they do, it's usually not to such a degree that it's an emotional, uh, emotional thing to let go of it if somebody's willing to give them a really good price. Businesses are completely the opposite, right? Somebody may have spent the last 20 years of toil and blood, sweat, tears, highs, lows, like just to get to this point where they get to realize all of that effort in one transaction. And they're saying goodbye to customers and dear employees that have been with them, you know, since the beginning, like it's, it's hard. It's like breaking up with, with a family member. Um, and some people are just looking for the top price, but a lot of times they're actually looking for, for somebody that's going to respect and value their legacy right? And, and honor what they've built. Um, and so that's why connecting with them as humans through these channels, whether it's a website or an email, is really, really important because you can't compete with the most well-funded private equity groups or strategic buyers, right? You have to differentiate yourself. And one of the ways you can do that is to be human and to humanize the way that you reach out to people. So we would, we would talk a lot about that. We would brainstorm industry ideas. As a generalist, I find that to be the most challenging part of the search fund process is what are the unknown unknowns? Like I've invested in so many businesses that I didn't even know existed as industries. 
until somebody found one one company that was just printing money and they're like this is great right so how do we go how do we create a discovery process that can churn up those sorts of opportunities on a regular basis so that you have enough at bats that eventually you're going to get a hit at at some point yeah i i came across a business the other day somebody was telling me about it they melt down old tires and and then they use that melted rubber to make gym mats and and other things of that nature business prints money and i'm like i just would never think this exists so i can feel right. you there yeah they're they're all over yeah it's, it that's one of the most fun things about this is you're like that's really cool like somebody yeah. figured that out <laughs> <laughs> all right so you've got me set up on my tech stack uh, you've introduced me to broker brokers that are interested in the areas that we've identified. Let's just go a little bit deeper on, and, and this can be like your opinion on things. I know you're a generalist, but you also kind of talked about as the search fund industry has evolved, there are certain types of businesses that folks like to stay in because it lowers the risk of failure. Um, but if you just had to pick a few, it may be industries or business types, like what are your favorite things for searchers to be out looking for? Um, and I know after what you just said, we're not going to be buying, uh, the annual Halloween costume shop that is, uh, that takes a vacant space for a few weeks to sell costumes. Although I, I did work with a searcher once that looked at one of those. I think it also sold lingerie um, and they would do these little pop up stands for costumes. And I don't know if lingerie is when that was in the same store. But it, so searchers have looked at those. But you're right. That would not be a high, a high priority for us to focus on. <laughs> um, so we want an industry that's growing at least at the rate of GDP, if not higher. We want um, a business that has recurring or reoccurring revenues, as much of those as we can get. We want a business that has strong margins. I would say typically 50% gross margins or higher. So that's after all of the costs that you have to layer in just to, to provide the good or service before you get to the SG&A, the sales general and administrative costs. Um, and then uh, some growth to the business is helpful. It's much easier to, to take a growing business and have it keep growing than it is to take one that's flat or in decline and turn it around. Um, and so, you know, there's no, I've been saying this a lot lately, but, but it, it really resonates um, uh, with all of my experiences that you don't get bonus points for degree of difficulty here. So like, it's hard enough as it is. Why not? Why try and make it any harder than you have to? So look for the easy situations where you just look at it and you go, oh, like this seller hasn't had a salesperson in 15 years I, and they're still growing every year. I wonder what would happen if we brought a salesperson in. Like maybe we grow a little bit faster. Like it's and that's the common sense piece, right? Like you have to have common sense and good judgment. That's one of those pieces of common sense. Like if the business is growing without a salesperson, there's a good chance that if we hire the right salesperson, it will grow faster. Um, so we would start to look at industries that we thought broadly had a large collection of businesses that fit that profile. Um, and you could, and it sort of goes through waves. So right now, especially among self-funded searchers, home services businesses are all the rage: plumbers, HVAC, you know, things like that, landscapers, things like that. They tick a lot of those boxes. They're stable, they're recurring. They can uh, oftentimes achieve little local moats and franchises where their brand recognition and their local geography is really strong, and that brings more customers in. They've got trucks driving around with basically, you know, moving billboards all the time. Um, there's it maybe not true recurring revenues unless you've got annual service contracts, but there's just a sort of an actuarially recurring amount of water heaters that are going to break in, in a geography in a given year. 
right? And so you could, with some sort of predictability, you can say, yeah, we expect about this many service calls for water heaters over the next 12 months based on what it looked like last 12 months. Um, and, and then uh, I think an honest seller is something we would also be looking for. These small businesses oftentimes are the embodiments of the people that that run them. And if you find a seller where you just get sort of that, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck stick up, that's going to be a red flag because typically if it's there, it's it's elsewhere in the organization as well. And again, look for the easy way. There's just too much complication dealing with those people. Um, and so we would just look for pockets of, of opportunities like that, where there's a fragmented base of businesses within an industry that have those characteristics. And then we developed a contact list and start doing the outreach. Got it. All right. I found a business uh, and a willing seller. Um, what what will typically happen then? How will I be working uh, with my search fund with y'all to kind of get this closed. Sellers agreed. We're now going to start papering this up. What what does the timeline look like and kind of what's going to happen in that timeline? Yeah. So we've got a signed LOI letter of intent, which gives us exclusivity to, to transact and due diligence on this business, typically for 45 to 90 days. You know, 60 to 75 days is typically about the amount of time it takes to close a deal. Um, and the first 30 days might be intensive market and company diligence. So this is sort of like the the health exam of the business. And you'll be looking at, it's sending large amounts of data requests to the seller. Everything you wanna know about the business. Like any question that you can think of like, oh, I wonder who does their payroll. I wonder how long the general manager has been on staff. I wonder if they what their benefits package looks like. I wonder um, what the customer trends have been like over the last three years. I wonder if they've got data on the gross margins by business line. Like anything you can think of like that that's going to help you to understand the business and what you're buying and the quality of the revenues uh, is fair game. What what insurance do they carry? Are there any potential lawsuits that exist right now or have there been any in the past? Have there been any significant customer departures or customers on contracts? Like there, And there are checklists that you can go through that sort of outline a lot of this. But really, in that first 30 days, you've, you've signed the letter of intent. You've got, a, you've got a thesis about why you think this is a good business. And then there's things that you have to believe in order for that to be true. Right? I believe that the customer they told me that they're going to sign next year that's going to add 30% of their revenues is actually going to sign. Uh, I believe that the key person that they've identified on the shop floor isn't going to resign the day after uh, I buy the business, things like that. And there's usually a few that bubble up to the top as the most important things. And that's how you start to prioritize what you're what you're doing in diligence. So I want to validate those because those are the big rocks, right? Like if I get those right, I can probably absorb some of the little things down here that I might have missed, but I have to get the big things right. And so that first 30 days is really just trying to confirm what you think is true about the business to the best extent possible. You might, uh, towards the tail end of that, or maybe even earlier, engage an accounting firm to do what they call a quality of earnings report, if you've got the budget to do that. And they sort of go through and understand all of the finances and accounting of that business and come back and say, yeah, the tax returns and what the, the company provided financial say is accurate, or we think we need to make these adjustments. And by the way, here's some risks that we saw that you might want to deal with post-close. They don't have a controller. We really saw poor controls. We think that that's going to be important for you to close financials on a timely basis, you know, things like that. Here's how they recognize revenue. So you'll go through and do all of that customer and, and, and company and market analysis during the first few weeks. Um, once you're sort of 
getting to the tail end of that and largely satisfied that the business is what you thought it was, if you don't have to renegotiate or walk away from the deal at that point, um, you, you'll start to spend more money. You try and do that first part, spending as little money as possible. Um, once you engage the lawyers to start drafting what they call the definitive agreements, typically the asset or the stock purchase agreement, maybe there's an employment agreement, things like that, um, it, it starts to get really expensive really quickly. And so that's when you start to what they call paper the deal, right? You say, here's all the things we agreed to. Now we're going to put it all in writing. And, and that the amount of time that that takes and the amount that it costs is highly variable. If you're dealing with an inexperienced seller or you're a really inexperienced buyer, if either party has made a poor choice of lawyer, um, it can drag on for a long time. Some people are slow to respond. It can happen. The slowness can happen at the diligence request too. Sellers are running a business. You ask for a lot of information. Maybe it's not organized. It takes them a long time to turn it around. Like That can eat up significant chunks of time, just like waiting for a lawyer to turn back a revision of the purchase agreement can. Like, well, I sent I sent my my edits to you a week and a half ago. How come I haven't gotten them? Oh well, lawyer was on vacation, or the seller was, or some or another fire popped up, or we just haven't gotten to it. And then and then there's a negotiation in between. But you you try and just control all of that as much as possible. Keep the timeline going while at the same time maintaining a positive relationship with the seller, right? And and because you, you're you're going to have to draw on that goodwill at some point. There's going to be contentious points in the negotiation. That arise. One of the areas that that most typically happens is is in the representations and warranties. So that's basically asking the seller to represent and and warrant to basically vouch for what they've told you. You know, so they they're if it's like that example about a big customer signing next year and they've got a you know a pre-signed contract that that in fact is a valid and lawful contract, right? They're going to represent that that is true. All sorts of things like that. That basically they're not misrepresenting anything. There's no fraud. Uh, that's taking place. There's no lying. Um, and if there is, then they're on the hook. And that's where you usually create like an escrow or a holdback or some sort of a mechanism to recapture some of the purchase cost if if somebody has done something in bad faith or been a bad actor. So you're just trying to manage all of these different things, raising the capital, doing the diligence, negotiating the purchase agreement, maintaining good, friendly relationships with the seller, especially if they're going to be providing a seller note or rolling some equity or going through a transition phase with you afterwards. Like You want to make sure that that's a healthy dynamic so that they're not poisoning the well before you get there or are just going to walk out on day one if you need them to stick around for a little while. And assuming you get all of those things in place, you know, typically 65 60, 75, 90 days later, all of the passwords have been transferred. The keys to the office have been given to you. Like you've, you, if it's an asset purchase, you have to rehire all of the employees with the new entity that you formed to buy the assets of the business. Um, and then you're the owner. Just that's all you got to do. <laughs> it's really stressful. It's really <laughs> nerve wracking. It feels like the deal could fall apart at any moment, all, almost all the time. Um, and it usually feels a little bit like a miracle that you made it through if you get that far. Is there any one reason that stands out of why most deals fall apart? Is it misrepresentation of the business? I know that's like an obvious one. What, what, no, what it, be it, like? those are those are fortunately those are edge cases. The more common reasons are just that it isn't quite what you thought it was going to be. You know, you have imperfect information when you start. Sometimes people sign these letters of intent before they've gathered really almost any information at all, especially in a competitive market. Like you just want to get that exclusivity and tie it up. Um, and so you go in with some ideas about what you think is true about a business, but maybe not everything has been disclosed. Um, for, an, for example, 
you um, don't think there's any customer concentration, right? Which would be a huge risk. If Walmart is 80% of your business, that's a material risk because Walmart decides to go with a different, a different vendor, like you're basically toast. So, but say that it's not a Walmart scenario, at least on the surface, it doesn't look like 80% of the customer base is con concentrated in one, in one company. <laughs> but then when you actually start to get the detailed records, the sellers told you, oh, no, no, we've got lots of customers. It ends up that one of the customers is 60% of the business, but they've got regional managers that are making the decisions. And, and the company treats each of those as a different customer, even though it's all the same umbrella company. Well, maybe you can get comfortable with that, but maybe you can't. So a lot of times why deals fall apart, it's just because there's something that you expected to be true at the outset that ends up not being true. And it materially changes the profile of the business you thought you were buying. Or they say, um, we thought that revenue this year was going to be 10 million and profits were going to be 2 million. The accounting firm comes in, scrubs all the numbers and says, oh, but you didn't look at this and you forgot about that. And you actually recognize this revenue in the wrong period. Instead of 10 million, it's now 8 million. Instead of 2 million in profit, it's now a million and a half. And you're not going to pay the same purchase price for a million and a half dollars in profit as you would for a business with two million. So you go back and talk to the seller about that and you can't reach a new agreement. Like Got things it. like that. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you care at all? Um, and I know every business is a little bit different. Do you prefer the original owner to stay on in some capacity? Do it, it I'm assuming in every case the searcher is stepping into the business day one of closing. Um, but are there preferred relationships that you've seen work better than others, or sometimes the set, the previous owner leaves immediately and it works, or is there typically some type of aftermath or after closing relationship that needs to occur for you to be comfortable? Not always a, a relationship in terms of somebody coming into the office still and providing guidance. That's nice. And it's, you know, we work hard to usually negotiate that because as much as we, we learn about the business during that period of exclusivity when we're doing our due diligence, we still probably only understand 20% of what the business does and certainly almost 0% of how it operates on a day-to-day -day basis and you know how, to, how, how you have to interact with certain employees and just all the tribal knowledge that exists is really hard to uncover in diligence. And so, again, that's why having a good relationship with the seller is helpful. Even if they exit on day one, you at least want to have enough of a, a relationship there where you could pick up the phone with a question and the seller will take the call, right? Like th that's really helpful. Where I think there's additional value for seller involvement is as a part of the financial structure, meaning that if they want to roll a, retain a little bit of equity or they'll provide um, some seller financing, so they'll carry back a note for some portion of the deal, that's really useful information, almost more so for the signal it provides than the actual monetary benefit that you get for having to use less of your own cash. Because again, in these small businesses, it's not like you're doing a diagnostic on a publicly traded company where there's great systems, there's there lots of people that can provide you the information, there's publicly reported data, there's audited financials. Like these businesses, sometimes they barely even have financials. There's almost no systems in place. Like it's just messy. The data is really messy. A lot of it is inaccessible. It's generally reliable and trustworthy, but not always. It's just much more likely that you'll miss something. And so if a seller is making all of these representations about how good the business is, and then you say, great, would you, would you provide me a million dollars in a seller note and sort of keep that on the table and, and I'll pay you out over five years. And if they say no, that's kind of a red flag, right? Like, well, if you believe as much in the cash flow producing ability of this company as you say you do, 
why wouldn't you want to give a million dollar note to this business if assuming the interest rate is reasonable right if it feels that safe you know the business way better than i do if you're not willing to be a lender to it and you know top of the capital stack first to get paid if things go go south why should i be willing to risk my capital right they, they there's this information asymmetry and they're on the advantage side of that equation and if they're putting all these signals out like i don't i want to run away from this business as fast as possible as a, as a buyer, you should be very concerned about that. Doesn't mean it has to exist in every place. You have to use your judgment there about, you know, are there legitimate reasons why they won't do it and, and things like that. But it's generally very helpful to have them have some skin in the game still after the sale closes. I found a business. What do a, what is a good outcome if I am in a either even a traditional search fund or with you? What should I have done to have said? Man, we crushed it. Is it doubling income over five years? Like, what what is a typical uh, home run look like? And then we'll work backwards to what might occur to get us there. Yeah, uh, home runs in, in this world, in contrast to something like venture capital, are scarce. It, it, this is maybe it's a little bit more of a home run business than than it used to be, or maybe than I originally perceived it to be. But I still think of it as hitting a lot of singles and doubles. And if you do that, if you do that consistently, like the returns take care of themselves, meaning like over my entire search fund investing career, I generated more than a three times multiple of my money across the portfolio and with an average hold period of about five years. So tripling your money in five years was sort of the average outcome for me across my portfolio. Again, that I wouldn't say in many ways that is a home run, like it's north of a 30% an annual compounded return. But three times your money is like if you're looking at venture capital returns or even some of the outlier search fund returns where it's 10x return or more, that's a home run, right? 3x, do that lots and lots and lots, singles and doubles, generates a home run-like outcome. Like your, your, your season average win percentage is very high, right? And so you're still going to the pennant and maybe the World Series. But it's not because you've got Barry Bonds or some big slugger that's hitting home run after home run. It's just all the players doing things really consistently. So 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 I'll rephrase it. If I've taken um, money from from y'all or from a search fund, the, the typical outcome that we would like to see happen is a three X three uh, X our money over five years, which translates to what in the business? in terms of what what happens in the business to generate that return yeah or is it that's to, to 3x that, that could just be doubling ebitda because you get a nicer multiple once the business grows like what has typically happened to the financials of the business in a typical traditional search fund deal um say it's 50 percent debt 50 percent equity at the time of close and then and then say you double you double profits over the ownership holding period let's just say that's five years um, and you sell for the same profit multiple or EBITDA multiple that you paid. So let's say you bought it for four times EBITDA, you sell it for four times EBITDA. So, and, and after five years, you've paid off all the debt. So just by paying off the debt, you've doubled your money. And then because the size of the business has doubled, the profits have doubled and you sell it for the same multiple that's doubled again. So now you've generated a four times return on your investment by doubling the size of the business and paying off debt. Those are two of the levers. The third lever that over the past 10 years has been pretty common is multiple expansion, they call it. So instead of paying four times profits when you sell or, or selling for four times profits when you bought it four, maybe you sell at six. And so you get an additional lift 
of you know two times the profit when you sell that you that you hadn't expected when you bought the business. It was just sort of icing on the cake. What what are the the typical problems that I'm trying to overcome or or the levers that I can pull to get there in a business that's one to two million? What are some characteristics of we don't have to call it low hanging fruit, but the things that you often see are if if we can go do this, there's a substantial chance we can grow this business. I would characterize a lot of the opportunities as just taking an undermanaged business and reorienting it towards growth and aligning the incentives incentives of the of the decision makers to share that same vision. So imagine a business that's generating a million and a half dollars a year in profit. It's been growing slowly, but you know the the seller's been taken out over a million dollars a year for the past decade. Um, that is a really nice lifestyle. That's an incredible lifestyle, right? And they're they're firmly in command of the business. At that point, you're taking a million and a half dollars a year out of the business. You probably just want to enjoy life. Most people, if they've been running the business and worked as hard as they did to get there, their foot still is not firmly pressed to the floor on the gas with the gas pedal, right? Like they're, they're easing up a little bit, um, and growing faster is just going to add more complexity to their lives and maybe even temporarily reduce their take-home pay. Because if I, if I make this investment to grow a little bit faster, that comes right out of my, my paycheck at this point, right? And so they operate a, a lot of times very lean. Nobody's going to run the business as efficiently as they did. So the margins are high. The cash flow is good. Not a lot of incentive for them to reinvest back into the company to fuel additional growth. Because whether they make a million and a half dollars a year or $2 million a year, their lifestyle is going to be largely the same. They're still going to be able to take the same vacations. Maybe they're still at the same country club. They still go out to dinner whenever they want. Like life looks the same. So why add additional complexity and risk if they don't have to, if it doesn't create some outsized benefit to them? They get to the point either where through lifestyle choices or just a ceiling and capability. You know, they knew how to grow a business to $10 million in revenue, but they can't figure out how to crack the code to get beyond that. And they've bumped their head against that ceiling a number of times. And now finally just gotten to the point where they say, I'm good. Like, I can't figure it out. This is fine. I'm just going to stick there. And eventually that just gets sort of tiresome or there's a health event or some other reason that says we're going to sell. So now they've sold the business. A new person comes in and says, I've got a million and a half dollars a year um, to fund growth. Or, or to pay back debt, right? Like those are usually the two big levers when you first buy a company. And so what do I do with that? And like it's the example I gave before, maybe I hire that salesperson or I put good financial controls in place and I start to produce timely month, monthly financial statements that I can actually use to help run the business. I create a, a data-driven decision-making culture within the organization. I empower the frontline workers. I give them the resources that they've always wanted. They, they haven't upgraded Microsoft Excel since 1998, right? Like, let's get them the new Excel, right? Like, things like that are just giving people the tools they need to do their job and giving them the training and support that they need to really flourish, creating a culture where it's exciting to grow, where the professional rewards accrue to the people that are on the journey helping to make that happen. You're getting promotions, you're getting bonuses, you're getting new challenges professionally, getting opportunities to lead other people. Some people opt to get off because that's not what they signed up for originally and they were used to and like the old way, but other people are energized by that. And pretty quickly in a lot of cases, you can start to shift that momentum. And so what a typical profile looks like is the first couple of years, you're reinvesting back into the business. Margins go down, capability goes up, and it's sort of like this coiled spring where 
you're creating a stronger foundation for more rapid growth going forward. And then, you know, after a couple of years of doing that, you really start to see the benefits. And now you're growing from a position of strength and everything isn't just held together with bailing wire and duct tape, right? It's like, we've got people for this. We've got systems for that. We've got outside resources that can provide us advice and counsel or help on these things. And we can now, that, that customer that always felt too big before now feels like we could do that no problem. So let's go get them. Yep. Do you care if they put if they implement like an EOS type of operating system or some type of proven kind of methodology for running the business or it's it's totally up? No, to I, I love it. I mean, if, if I find those things again, I said before, I'm really analytical, analytical and logical. So I love those that bringing structure to those types of environments I find really helpful and it creates real alignment between all of the stakeholders. But it doesn't have to be something like EOS or Traction or one of the off-the-shelf, you know, models. If if you've got it in your head and you know how to do it, you you know, create a, a mission statement and talk about your values and create career paths for people, and you have regular meeting cadences and there's you know uh, real honesty about the feedback that you're providing to people. Like there's the the foundational building blocks. If you do all that, I don't care if you, it's a system, it has a name, but if you're doing it, it usually is helpful. Because organizations, particularly if they're growing, they, they want to spin off into chaos. It's this principle of entropy. And so that helps to sort of contain it. Yep. We don't have to go deep into this, but and you already touched on it earlier. But the day I close this business, I've never, uh, you know, chances are I've never owned a business before yet, or this is my first time to buy. And I know you talked about just kind of showing up and 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 observing and getting to know the culture but are there like two or three things that come off your head when I say, you know, what should I expect in my first 30 to 60 days on the job? What what are some things that, that that we've kind of agreed on that I will get done? And what are some things that I should be really patient that maybe you've seen other people do and it's clearly not the right thing to do in the first couple months of being there? I, I think you have to make payroll. Right. Like screwing that up is a really bad start that, that leaves a very long tail. Uh, yeah. You're laughing, but, you know, and it is kind of funny to talk about, but absolutely true. Like you have to get the payroll right. If people don't get their paycheck on time when they expect to see it, that's just a horrible start. And you lose tremendous amount of credibility and trust right out of the gate. Um, don't overpromise. Right. So you want to come in, you want to make people happy. You want to show off and say, like, I'm this new leader. Change is here. But if you overpromise and don't deliver, again, it's just going to take that much longer to build back that trust with the team. Um, and so you don't want to do that. So tread very carefully. Just keep a notebook, write everything down. If it's still a good idea in three months or six months, it'll still be there. You can come back to it. You don't have to do everything right away. Um, I think genuinely try and get to know the people if the team is is you know close enough and of the size where you can you can do that you know take them out to lunch but either in small groups or one-on-one -on -one, especially your direct reports are the key people like shine a light on them make 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 them feel really good there's going to be a lot of a lot of concern and anxiety about what a new leader means is my job safe am i going to get fired like reassuring is a lot of it in the early days uh i think there's going to be a lot of things that if you start to, people will test you, right? Like I, I remember uh, one of the companies I bought sat down with a new CEO as he came in and I was there, took everybody to lunch. One of the employees in the middle of lunch turned to the CEO and, and started asking for a raise, right? Like in front of the whole team um, and, and saying basically like, you know, wages are too low here. And, the, you know, and, and it was a test. Like, how is, the, how is this person going to respond to this? 
Um, so you have to be prepared to deal with that stuff. And, and the, in that case, the CEO is a very savvy, eloquent guy and, and sort of handled it very appropriately and took it offline and did some coaching about the appropriateness of things like that. But, you know, you're going to hear all, uh, both the testing, but you're also going to hear a lot of stuff like, you know, the, the old owner did this and I hated it or my colleague, I can't stand and you have to get me away from them, right? Like there's going to be all these HR issues that come up. Um, and you just need to sort of triage a lot of that stuff and, and sort of just move at your own pace. Don't get swept into the, into the river that they're on right away and sort of ease yourself into it so that you're not making early mistakes that are, that are unforced errors, right? I think, I think those are probably the biggest things that to focus on. Like if you bought a good business and it's running smoothly, trust in that, right? You spend a whole lot of money and a whole lot of time to get to this point, trust in what you bought. And just take it slowly. And maybe something happens where you have to react more quickly. But if you can, just relax and settle in. Yep. That's great advice. I wish I could have told myself that when I was starting Ford. I'm sure there's a lot of my employees (laughs) that wish I had taken that advice to it at certain (laughs) times. Um, What's my relationship with y'all going to be like? Uh, We've talked about a board. But what what types of things would I be? And you had mentioned, you know, the phones uh, on. Call me if you have a, a stupid question that I ha- or a stupid idea or something of that nature. But what's kind of our formal informal relationship post close? Am I meeting with you quarterly? And, and what are we talking about? I think investors have different viewpoints about this, and some take a really structured, strong approach to engagement with their portfolio companies or portfolio company CEOs. Others uh, are very hands-off, maybe to the point of negligence in the most extreme cases. Um, I think of the relationship as being really dynamic with a few built-in checkpoints on a regular cadence just to create the structure that I like. Um, So yes to quarterly board meetings which is a review of the business, an opportunity for the CEO to elevate their viewpoint you know, from the day-to-day to a little bit more strategic, which they don't get to do very often typically, and to think more holistically about the business and where we are today and where we're trying to get to and what are the, the big levers that we can pull to help us get there. Problem solving around issues where a sounding board might be useful. I mean, you know, being a leader in an organization can oftentimes be a very lonely spot. Even if you're in a peer group like YPO or these other things, they don't understand their business as intimately as you do. And they typically don't care about it as much as you do. And so there's there's very little peerness as a CEO. And so to have a group of investors that is aligned with you and your success and the company's success and knows the business well and cares about it is just a relief valve for a lot of people. They really like to be able to say like, oh, I can talk to these people and they get it, right? And they're giving me sound feedback about the ideas. Even if I don't always agree with it, it's still a nice perspective and I value that. Um, Talking about the performance of the business, upcoming hires that might need to be made, it just depends, it's all very situational. Um, And then between the board meetings, it's really just a dynamic relationship. It depends on what the CEO wants. For for me, this is the way I like to interact with my CEOs. Like if if they need some extra assistance with something, I want to be there to to help that. I mean, these companies typically are really constrained in what they're able to accomplish on their own. There isn't a lot of thought partnership or even extra hands on deck to do one-off projects. Like we'd really love it if we could just analyze this data or we're going to make a senior level higher and I haven't done that a lot before. Could you help and ride shotgun on this on this interviewing process? Or could you be a last look 
before before we make the hire. Like things like that that come up where I think I can be impactful, sort of a leverage point and be really efficient with with the value that I add. And other times, especially after they've been in the role for a while, they might just be sailing along and things are good and they like the autonomy and they're like, quarterly, quarterly board meetings are great. Like that's all I need. Um, that's valuable for me. Even just preparing the board deck, it makes me think about the business in a way that I often don't get a chance to do. And so forcing that is really helpful. But between those board meetings, unless you hear from me, like just assume we're good and you'll get, you know, monthly financials and other things to sort of allow you to look through the window and make sure that, that your read on this is the same as mine. But like, I don't want to, the reason people want to be CEOs in this model that we're doing is because they really value the autonomy. And so I feel like I need to earn the right to be in relationship with them where I can be involved. I mean, I, I do because I'm providing the capital, but I want it to be just a more natural connection, not a forced one where they say like, you know, Tim is really a valuable contributor to the team here and I don't need to engage him all the time, but he's a resource that I can draw on and I need to learn how to use that resource. And sometimes I'll flex up and use it a lot and sometimes I won't need it much and it'll go way down. And and I, there's no ego for me in all of this. I just want the best outcome and for them to, to thrive professionally and grow as a leader. And so if I'm not contributing to that, if my involvement is actually detracting from that, like I hope they'll tell me if I'm not aware of it, but even better is if I'm aware of it and just step back. All right, a couple more. Um, as a business owner, am I just ever distributing cash back to my uh, single LP, which is majority search? Or is this a one-time event at the very end where returns are made? Like how are returns made throughout the life of this investment? It's gonna depend on the company. Some companies require very little cash to grow. So they can they can just fund their growth with you know not a lot of extra money being put into it. Um, and it it depends on how much debt there is on the business, is the other probably big, big constraint there. If there's a lot of debt, a lot of that cash has to be going paid to paying down the debt and providing the debt service. If there's if there's little debt or just a lot of cash flow, it becomes a capital allocation decision, right? So as a board and the CEO, we take a lot of direction from the CEO and what they think is the best and highest use of that capital. And hopefully we agree, but they need to make the case. We can reinvest the cash for growth or we can distribute it. And then there are, there are tax obligations, right? These are all passed through entities typically set up as LLCs. And so the net income generated by the business on a tax basis um, shows up on the K-1s and the reportable taxable income for the investors, and it flows through our entity back to our investors. And so if we're not distributing the allocable portion of taxes based on the net income of the business, then investors have to reach into their own pockets to, to pay their share of the taxes, and that doesn't feel fair. So we do tax distributions as, as they're not mandatory, but we treat them as mandatory. And then after that, the after-tax um, free cash flow is used to either distribute back out to partners or reinvest in growth. And our partners have basically, by signing up with us, have said, if there's opportunities to put that capital to work to grow the business and create more long-term equity value for us as owners, that's our preference. So unless we really just have no good idea what to do with the cash sitting on the balance sheet, um, it will stay in the business to get reinvested. If we don't, we'll distribute it out to partners. But unlike real estate, right, where a lot of it, a lot of the interest is because one, the incredible tax efficiencies of real estate, but two is the the highly predictable cash flow streams that come out of it. And people sort of rely on that coupon or that regular distribution as as part of why they're making the investment in the first place. And ours, you you have to expect that you might not receive any distributions besides these tax ones until the day of sale or some other major liquidity event. But we think across a portfolio 
there will be some regular pe- period of distribution for at least some of those businesses. How many would this ever come up in conversation where there's cash? Um, you know, again, this is my first time owning a business. I don't see any way to grow the, the business with the cash I have. But but Tim, you've been in this 20 years and you're staring at a golden goose opportunity is the way the relationship works. You're going to lob that idea to me and I've got to chew on it and decide if I want to do it. Like how many times is, are the ideas flowing out of, from you, as opposed to me having to come up with all of them? Not very often. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and maybe early on, it's, it's maybe, a, it's probably 50, 50 early on as we're all getting to know and learn the business and the industry. But, you know, I'm spending a very small amount of time on a weekly basis interacting with that business and learning more about it compared to the CEO who's living and breathing it every day. So even after the first week, they're already way out in front of me on the racetrack and it's, the gap is just going to get bigger and bigger. So their judgment starts to carry more and more weight because they're the closest to it. And ultimately, they're the ones that have to execute on these ideas. So, you know, I become almost more like Dr. No, or putting the guardrails on and like really being the, the, the red team to, to challenge. Like, you think that's a good idea, but let's really pound on it for a while because you might have just sort of fallen in love with it and it seems like a good idea. But now validate it to me as a check on the process. And if you can get me on board and convince me that this is a good idea, that probably means that the risk level is acceptable here. And on and on risk level and kind of is is too much growth. Is there a situation where it's it's too much? Maybe you get an entrepreneur that that buys a company, and the business is going really well, and all of a sudden they can buy more companies, and they can, I mean, almost turn this into like a private equity like deal. Maybe not in the first year, but you see this. Oh my gosh, this opportunity is actually going to be much larger. Like, how do you handle that? Is it? you sell it to the next buyer and let them run with it? Or is there a point where it, this thing can get too big for the typical search model, I guess is the question. No, I think is the answer, but but with some caveats. Um, I think just like it's unusual for someone like Mark Zuckerberg to come out of college and start this little company called the Facebook and turn it into the global behemoth that is meta now and to be the CEO that whole journey. Like that's that's really exceptional for somebody to have that high of a, a ceiling and be able to be effective, you know, in a, in a dorm room all the way up to one of the largest companies in the world. Our CEOs are no different. Like we think that they've got really high ceilings, but we don't know where that caps out. Also, as they build as they build net worth, their interest level may wane. They may want to start to do other things or pursue other things. And so, like a lot of things can can take shape that might draw us off course. But if somebody's aligned, the business is growing, we see a path to continued growth. We want to ride that as long as we can. That's part of that's part of what excites us is this long term compounding and on a tax deferred basis because we don't actually you know pay the taxes on all of that equity value that we're creating until we have a liquidity event and sell. Um, and if you look at the largest privately held companies around the globe, it, the reason that they're so big is largely because they've just been able to continue to exist, right? Staying in the game and not dying leads to a lot of optionality over time. And if you get a couple of those uh, those forks in the road right, you can grow very substantial enterprises. It might take a generation or more, but that's where the vast amount of wealth and returns accrue to investors is the ones that are patient. 
Um, and if you model this out and say a typical private equity hold period is three to five years, you sell, pay taxes, recycle the capital, put it back into something else. If you take similar growth trajectories or, or on those businesses, but you held them, um, you make like 25 times or more by buy and hold than you do by recycling the capital in these short little intervals. Um, and so philosophically, we want to own businesses for the long term. Sometimes there are complications that prevent that, um, like the loss of interest in a CEO or the, you know, the CEO sort of reaching their max. And if it's a good outcome, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to change the CEO out unless they also recognize it and say, like, I'm not the right person, but I still believe in this business. Let's see if we can find somebody that would be the right person to take it to the next stage. Like, that's great. But if they say, like, I'm done, I don't think I can do it anymore. I don't like it just doesn't like we'll sell the business because they don't want to be running it anymore. That, that's okay. That as long as we've generated a good return, um, we're okay with that. It's sort of a shared dependency we have on each other. Um, and we want to be good, respectful partners to them and do what's right for all of the constituents. But certainly they are one of those groups that we consider. Got it. Okay. Um, there, there's a discussion that the baby boom generation is about to retire and there's mil, you know, hundreds of thousands of businesses. I don't know the number that are about to come to fruition. How, like when you think about that, it, I know the headline reads that like every business in the world's about to be on sale. Like, how are you actually really, you're in the trenches on here. Are most of these business actually even going to transact? Like, how do you think about it when you read that and hear that? Is there a wave of opportunity coming or is it overhyped? Like, it's add both. to that. Okay. I, I think it's both. I, I mean, the demographic shift is real. There is this, I think the word that media uses now, tsunami of aging baby boomers. Um, many of them uh, do own businesses that will need to transact or have some sort of a succession plan in, plan in place. I, I think a lot of them, as they exist today, are unsaleable. Um, they're too small or they're too reliant on the owner and the relationships that that person has or the, the inherent skill and knowledge that they have about the business to really make it attractive to a buyer to come in at arm's length and say, yeah, I want to take this off your hands. Um, and then in our world, because of the strict criteria that we have around what a good business looks like, that shrinks the universe even further. Um, so I think between like five and $50 million in revenue, there's call it somewhere around quarter of a million to maybe half a million businesses in the US that fit that mold. When you start to apply our criteria, like that number shrinks really quickly. Um, and of those, because of our criteria, those are saleable businesses. So at any given time, and businesses are growing, shrinking, so that the pool is always changing, but the number probably stays roughly the same of total addressable opportunities. You know, I would guess that at any given moment, there's probably somewhere between 30 and 50,000 businesses that maybe could be bought um, in our size of the market. So that, and there are traditional searchers, maybe a couple hundred. Uh, knocking on doors at any given time right now, self-funded searches, maybe you know some multiple of that, but relative to the number of companies in the size range we just talked about, it's still just a, a small fraction. So there's there's plentiful opportunity if you're willing to do the hard work and and reach out to all these sellers uh, until you find one where all the stars align. All right, I thought I would end it on a fun question. If two of these gentlemen that I'm about to describe came to you and you could only back one of them, who would you pick? And the two people are Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Both come to Tim and say, I'm out looking for a business. 
Which one are you backing and why? I would back Jeff Bezos. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I would back, I, I would back Jeff Bezos because I think his style of leadership and company building probably aligns a little bit more with my own. Like I, I understand that I have to take risks, but I want them to be more calculated bets. Uh, Elon Musk to me seems a little bit more like a maverick and somebody that's willing to really play the long odds to to have outsized opportunities. And to his credit, like he's manifested just uh, amazing companies and he's got a really strong, I think, internal mission that's driving him about saving the planet. Uh, Jeff Bezos, I feel like to go to sort of stock vernacular is the lower beta choice. Like, I just think there's going to be less variability in the outcomes there, and that gives me comfort. Tim, this has been uh, this has just been great. Thank you so much for for taking time, and um, yeah, this is just a great episode. Oh, thank you, Chris. This is a lot of fun. It was great to spend the time with you. I appreciate it. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.